Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. Our vision is to extend and establish the influence of the kingdom of God by equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. How's the family doing today? Doing well? Well, it's great to see the families getting bigger. Um, and what has the Lord been saying to this family? What has the Lord been saying to the, the greater family, the greater church recently? For me, He's been initiating and calling us back to an intimate relationship with Him. Amen? Yeah. Reminding us that that is true life. So, this week, my attention was drawn to two specific occasions in Scripture where the Father urges His people to respond to His call for intimacy. Now, listen, if you open the Bible from page 1 to the last page, it's the whole Bible is a call to intimacy with Him. Amen? So I'm only highlighting two, but the whole Bible is the Father's heart to us. But th this morning I want to reflect on two occasions, two different books of the Bible where two different leaders of Israel call to the people, to their people, and reminding them that the Father is longing for intimacy with them. Each leader is calling them into a relationship to their Father God, des describing what relationship should look like inwardly and outwardly. Amen? And that's what, you agree with me, that's what the Father's been doing with us recently, reminding us of why we exist, not just as a family, but as individuals in that family. So, we're going to do a lot of scripture reading today. You got your fingers ready? I'm going to be scrolling on those phones very quickly. No, kidding. Um, I'm going to begin with the first leader and the first book. We're going to begin with Moses. And we're going to be where he's addressing the Israelites in Deuteronomy. So let me give you context. You know me, I love context. So when we pick up the book in Deuteronomy, a lot has happened since. Where's the Israel family at this stage? Number one, Israel has been delivered from Egypt. They have spent some time at Mount Sinai where they made a covenant and commitment to God to obey His laws. Right? And the law is called the Torah. We know it as the commandments, but it was the Torah law. But then they wander around the desert for 40 years. Anybody know why they wander around the desert for 40 years in the wilderness? Yeah, no GPS, no, no obedience or willingness to obey God or follow His direction, right? And, and the generation dies out. The reason is they chose to listen to fear and their own will instead of God's will and instruction to enter into the land He promised for them. Let me read you without looking at your Bibles and without looking on the screen is exactly why they wandered around the desert for 40 years. And this is why. This is what the people said to God when he gave them the promised land. At the cusp of the promised land, they sent out 12. The 12 came back with their reports. We know the two that were positive, and we know the rest. But listen to the people's response. This is the key. They didn't have to listen to the 10. They should, could have chosen to listen to the two. But this is the response, and this is where their GPS failed, and they entered into disobedience. They say, why didn't we die in Egypt or in this wilderness? Why has God brought us to this country to kill us? Our wives and children are about to become plunder. Why don't we just head back to Egypt and right now? And do you know they were about to stone Moses and Aaron? Now, that is 
severe disobedience. Amen? It's not just complaining or grumbling that they were doing the whole journey. They were now choosing for themselves. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, we're going to choose our way and we're not going to choose God's way. God's given us this promised land. He said it's flowing with milk and honey. The reports are correct. It is flowing with milk and honey. But there's something we have to do. But you see, they weren't willing to pay that price. They weren't willing to obey God. And that's where faith comes into into action, right? It's knowing that I'm not trusting on my own understanding, but I'm trusting in what God the Father has told me, despite what lies before me. And this is where we start Deuteronomy. So, let me read in Moses' words, and you can all read. We're going to follow the message translation. No guesses why. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 34 to 40. Let's read this. When God heard what you said, he exploded in anger. This is Moses recounting, remembering the people just said what I just read out loud, and now this is God's response in that. He swore, not a single person of this evil generation is going to get as much as to look at the good land that I promised to give your parents. Not one, except for Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He'll see it. I'll give him and his descendants the land he walked on because he was all for following God, heart and soul. That is very important. Look who enters that land, the one who was willing to follow God despite the circumstances. Verse 37. <laughs> this is funny. I, I, I laughed when I read this. Now this is Moses. Says, but I also got it. Because of, God's, because of you, God's anger spilled over onto me. He said, you aren't getting it either. You're not getting in either. Your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will go in. Build up his courage. He's the one who will claim the inheritance for Israel. And your babies of, of whom you said, they'll be grabbed for plunder. Remember they said that? And all these little ch- kids whom right now don't even know right from wrong, very important, they'll get in. I'll give it to them. Yes, they'll be the new owners, but not you. Turn around and head back to the wilderness following the route to the Red Sea. There's key parts there. The children enter, and they didn't know right from wrong. We're going to touch on that now. So this is where Deuteronomy picks up. A new generation is about to... They, at, they traveled for 40 years. The GPS took them on a long route because they were following their own app and not God's one. right? And they got, they got back to where they were supposed to be 40 years earlier. But what's the difference? A generation has passed. That was the consequence for not obeying God's law. And now they're before the Jordan River. And, they separ- and they're separating, finally, the one last thing that's separating them from entering into their promised land. And this is where Moses, and this is what I want to focus on, this is where Moses gives a series of speeches or teachings to this new generation, urging them to be different from their fathers before them. Don't be like your parents who didn't listen to the will of God. These are Moses' final words to Israel before he passes. He gives a series of teachings before he goes and he dies. And he's urging them under Joshua's leadership, listen to your father. Now, that's key because they didn't know the law. Amen? Their parents failed to walk in it, so do you think their parents passed it on? Kids learn from what they see, not only what they hear you teach them. So even if their traditions went on, they saw a disobeying generation before them. So this is where God's mercy, 
That's why I always say the Old Testament is God's mercy. He gives them another chance. And Moses is giving them speeches, and he's saying, listen to the law again. And do you know what the meaning of Deuteronomy is? It's broken in two words in the Greek. Deutero, which is second, and nomos, which is law. It means second law, but the better way to say it is law revisited. Because the generation didn't know that law. But you see, even the word law in our English vocabulary is insufficient. It, we don't understand law. When we hear law, we always hear of the negative, right? We always hear of prohibition. But that is not the Torah way. It's not prohibition, but it's instruction. It's not the way you shouldn't go, but it's the way you should go. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. So often we think of the one fruit that they weren't allowed to eat. But we forget of everything they were allowed to eat and have domain and actually put the influence in. But you see, us in our language today, we look at the things we can't have. Because we want to choose for ourselves what's right and what's wrong. That is selfishness and independence. And that's not what God calls us to. The Torah is to be learned, pondered, and applied to life. Deuteronomy, therefore, is a book that reveals and explains the will of God. And I want us to see it as such. So Moses read and explained the law again to this generation, pleading that they listen, learn, and obey. And for me, I really love when we get to a certain section of Deuteronomy which pours out God's heart through Moses. But towards the end of the book, Moses makes it clear what he's doing here. And he, he makes it clear. He says the purpose of the book within the book. So let's read Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 to 16. Look what I've done for you today. I've placed in front of you life and goodness, death and evil. And I command you today, love God, your God. Walk in His ways, keep His commandments, regulations, rules, so that you will live and really live. Live exuberantly, blessed by God, your God, in the land you're about to enter and possess. Can you hear that Moses knew the only hope for success, the only hope to walk and to take hold of what God has promised them, is this, that they love their Lord, their God, that they choose life. Moses gives them an intimate way, an intimate way in the relationship that they can relate to Yahweh, a prayer that was birthed from his words in Deuteronomy. And you know, till today, the Hebrew nation echoes Moses' instruction, and they pray these words daily, more than once, morning and night, right? And we know this prayer is called the Shema, right? Do you know, you know are you familiar with the Shema? Well, we're going to go through it today. Let's read it together, and let's all read it together. So let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to read verse 4 to 5. I'm going to follow your version first. So let me know if everybody's there. Or you can just, re let's read it on the screen, then it's easier, then I can hear you instead of. So Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 to 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. I like the New Living Translation because there's only one change, and that's the first word. It says, listen, O Israel. You see, the word Shema is actually, in the English language, which we are going to describe as insufficient, is listen in, in our language. And it's taken from the first word in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. 
Shama is that first word there. You guys got to hear. New Living Translations got listen. But it means so much more than that. I'm going to break it down. In the Hebrew tradition, it's not just to hear or to listen. I'm going to give you five meanings, what it really means to shama the Word of God. Number one, it is to hear, to audibly perceive with the ear a sound that is made by someone or something. Number two, it's to listen, to give attention to a sound. Now, already there, we struggle. I struggle, right? We can hear but we don't necessarily listen. We don't necessarily give our full attention to something or someone, especially in today's mind where there's lots of noises. We struggle to drown the rest out and actually focus on the person that's conversing with me right now. But then we also, what about the next step? To understand. To perceive the intended meaning of the words or language of a speaker. So if Siobhan and I are having a conversation, I can hear him, I can listen to him. I'm listening to the words coming out of his mouth, but I need to understand them. I need to, his message that he's trying to convey to me, I need to fully understand it. I need to perceive his intended meaning. Right? And if he's asking of something of me, the next step is to be willing to obey, to carry out a command or instruction. Do you know the word obey in Latin comes from the word hear in English? Wow. The word hear, just like we said, is insufficient. In Latin, means obedience. Interesting, there's no separation. And the most important part is if I had that conversation with Siobhan and I'm willing to obey, the next immediate step, an obvious step, is to respond in action. To respond in deed. In Latin, it means something offered in return. That is response. So let's read that again when we say Shema, O Israel. Shema, family. When God is calling us to Shema, He's telling us to hear, to listen, to understand, and to be willing to obey, and then respond. And I'm going to change it in love. You see, that's what the Shema really means. And that's what it means to love God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. It means going through those processes and responding back to Him. Amen? You see Moses' words again at the end of Deuteronomy, verse 19 to 20. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I place before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your children will live. And love God, your God, listening obediently to Him, firmly embracing Him. Oh yes, He is life itself, a long life settled on the soil that God, your God, promised to give your ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those words echo out still today. There are still two choices out there. Life with the Father or death without Him. Amen? He tells us the answer. He says, please, I loved you first before, they, before you responded in that love. Please, love me back. And it's easy, isn't it? Once we understand it, we just need to respond. Everything else has been done for us. Now, before I give you the next book and the next occasion and the next leader, where, again, a leader comes before the people and pleads with them to enter into a freedom of intimacy with God. And I'm sure some of you are already thinking of the name. 
I want you to draw, to draw special attention to the way this book I'm about to show you is written. And before I do that, I know we've said it a few times, but we need to understand the way Hebrew writers approach Scripture, especially in the New Testament. They never rejected what was before. Instead, they built upon it. And what they did is they put a layer. They built upon that layer, and they carried the threads from the Old Testament through to the New, and they put it in a scarlet thread that we would see and identify and be called to memory of the previous. You see, it's amplified when we know the past and we know the present and future. And that's why I started in Deuteronomy, because it's still the same today. So before we go into the new book, let's read the last two verses of Deuteronomy to transition into this new. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10 to 12 in the message. No prophet has risen since in Israel like Moses, whom God knew face to face. Never since has there been anything like the signs and miracles and wonders that God sent to him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his servants, and to all his land. Nothing compares with that powerful hand of his and that great and terrible things Moses did as every eye in Israel watched. I think we forget the role Moses played. And I think we lack to understand how powerful a mediator he was between God and the people. And he was a forecursor of what was to come. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 17 to 19 in the message again. And God said to me, they're right, they've spoken the truth. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from their kinsmen. I'll tell him what to say and he'll pass it on to them everything I command him. And anyone who won't listen to my words spoken by him, I will personally hold responsible. Who am I talking about? Jesus. You see, we... we if we put the Old Testament as that foundation layer and we pull those threads through, we can see Jesus is the complete fulfillment of the Old. Not, not only is there a second Adam, he's the second Moses. Right? And Matthew's gospel account is so powerful that he looks back not just on Deuteronomy, but the whole Torah books. That's what they had available to them. And he calls to remembrance purposefully. I would have loved to spend the whole Sunday with you as a Bible study and gone to show you, but it would have taken too long. We would have had a four-week Bible study study on how Matthew purposely takes those strands of the Old Testament and he completes them, just like Jesus takes the strands of the Old Testament and completes them. So I'm going to draw some comparisons. You see, Matthew presents Jesus as the new Moses for the people of Israel. And there's numerous similarities sorry, between the story of Moses and Jesus, just the story, just the background, just the facts, never mind who they were. So I'm just going to give you four. Just as Moses, sorry, just as Pharaoh killed the baby boys in he, of the Hebrews, and Moses is the solitary saved one, the same way, Herod, the king of Israel, threatened by Jesus' presence, kills all male babies in Bethlehem, and Jesus is saved. The next fact. Moses' life was in danger after he, he killed the, the God that was about to hit the slave. And he flees for Israel. He flees for his life. Uh, Egypt, sorry. He flees Egypt to Israel. But he returns to Egypt many years after. You see, Jesus takes the reverse itinerary. He is fear of his life in Israel, so he flees to Egypt. 
Do we know that? As a baby, when he was about to kill, he goes to Egypt, and then he comes back. The next fact. Moses did not eat or drink for 40 days and 40 nights while on the mountain recording God's law. And we know Jesus did not eat for 40 days and 40 nights while in the wilderness where he was tested and tempted by the enemy. And my favorite, just as Moses goes up to a mountain to receive the law, like we just said, the Ten Commandments from God, he goes up to a mountain. So does Jesus go up to a mountain to give a new law in the Sermon of the Mount, in Matthew 5. And this is where I want to pick up. This is the point where I want us to see, just like Moses before him, urging the people before he leaves, urging them to follow God's Torah, to shama, to listen, to understand, to obey. He urges them the same. Jesus urges the same today. A lot of you, you've heard the Sermon on the Mount, but all, I'm just going to put it in a brief context. It's early in Jesus' ministry, after he comes out of the wilderness. And simply, before he goes up in Sermon on the Mount, he's been about all of Galilee, preaching, and you can read that in, in Matthew 4. And great crowds followed him, so he's got a following. And there, as a setting for a sermon, he sits on a mount, because you can imagine there probably were countless people, so he needed to get to a high elevation for people to hear him and to see him. And this is where Jesus gives a series of speeches again and a series of teachings. The longest teachings that we can see that is not interrupted in the New Testament. It goes from Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And you know, countless sermons can be pulled from that one discussion. But you see, what, what Jesus is doing here, and I'm going to bring some, some things to remembrance, is he's quoting and expounding on the Torah law again. He's quoting, just like Moses did. Remember, Deuteronomy is just a recount of it, and Jesus is now recounting again. And he's recounting it to this generation, to a new generation, once again of Israel, and he's urging them to listen, to learn, and to obey. He's urging them to shema. You see, Jesus is retelling and completing the Torah. But the difference is he gets to the root of the commandments, no longer stuck in the surface, no longer stuck to the flesh, and, but to the motives of the heart, what really make people do things, not just the outward appearance of them, because those can be, we can mask that, right? We can do things out of what people think and not do it what we know is right. And in Jesus' words, he completes the Torah in this. So let's read together in Matthew 5, verse 17 to 18. Don't suppose for a minute that I have come to demolish the Scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I'm going to put it all together, put it all together in a vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after the stars burn out and the earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. I just love the way the message puts the panorama picture. Because the stars, you do not know where it ends or where it begins. It's a panorama. It's unending. It's continuous. The ground, we look down, we think it begins at our feet, but it's, where does it begin and end? And this is what God is saying, I'm rounding it out. 
in our minds, but you cannot fathom the beginning or the end of the Torah law. And again, the key here is, and we're going to spend time on this, is in the middle of the Sermon of the Mount, once again, just like Moses before him, Jesus gives us a prayer that anchors our faith in our Heavenly Father. Now, you already know the prayer, but I think it's become far too familiar for us. For me, I remember singing it at school, praying it at school every morning, and that's a blessing for us to do in this country. Amen? But I think I started this week spending time in like, do we really understand the Lord's Prayer? Are we treating it with the reverence and the understanding that Jesus gave it? And he said, this is how you pray. And listening to someone else say it's quite funny, he says, I think he meant it. He, he wants us to pray like this. And I'm not going to go into the preamble before he enters the prayer, but the gist of it is, he says, don't be like those who pretend that the motives of their heart is not lining up with the words coming out of their mouth. Don't be like those who are trying to show off, pray long prayers, play loud prayers in the middle of the day. In Israel, you had three prayer times, morning and night and afternoon. And obviously we know the Pharisees in the afternoon would make a big commotion to show off their spirituality. We should not be like that. I'm talking about the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. Siobhan says, what did you say? Yeah. The Lord doesn't pray it. He gave it to us to pray to Him. Right? This morning, I, wanted, I want us to look at this prayer. I want us to hear this prayer, to shamar this prayer, as if Jesus was telling it to us for the first time. So I'm purposely going to read it for you, and I don't want you to look in your Bibles. I'm going to read it from a translation you probably are not familiar with it, because they are still busy with it. Michael drew my attention to it. It's called the Passion Translation. So even Deuteronomy is not covered yet. Right? So I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it, Matthew 6, verse 9 to 13 in the Passion Translation. Jesus says, Pray like this. Our Father, dwelling in the heavenly realms, may the glory of your name be the center on which our lives turn. Manifest your kingdom realm and cause your every purpose to be fulfilled on earth, just as it is fulfilled in heaven. We acknowledge you, you as our provider, of all we need each day. Forgive us the wrongs we have done as we ourselves release forgiveness to those who have wronged us. Rescue us every time we face tribulation and set us free from evil. For you are the King who rules with the power and glory forever. Amen. Sometimes it's good to read things differently and refresh. I like to do that. Because... And we're going to return to the New King James Version because it is just as powerful, but we've become familiar with the reading of it and we lose the reverence that it symbolizes. So I purposely wanted to read something that's unfamiliar, but we're going to study the familiar and we're going to make it fresh again. So let's all turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 8 to 13 in the New King James Version. And 8 basically says, Therefore do not be like them. And we're talking about the pretenders. For your, your Father knows the things you have need before you ask Him. And before we pray that, isn't that amazing? Yeah. He tells us He knows what we, are, we need to pray for Him, but He still wants us to reach out and ask Him for it and to enter into that discussion. And I think that's the beauty of it. We just think God needs to know, but He does know. But He's looking again for that Shema response to Him. He's looking for that 
come to me for the answers for these things. Amen? He's looking for us to acknowledge him as source. So this morning, I want us to read from verse 9 to verse 13. I want us to read together the Lord's Prayer. Okay, we're going to pick up from verse 9. You guys can start from the Our Father. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Now, I studied this, and for me it became a revelation of spending more time not being familiar with the Lord's Prayer and understanding what it's saying. And a teacher highlighted to me that it's broken up into two parts. So I want Rick to leave it up there. What two parts do you think the prayer is broken into? For me, as the teacher highlighted to me, it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do we see any of us or our in there? No. The only our is our Father. It's all about Him. Your name, your kingdom, your will. Jesus helps us to truly pray. What is prayer? Prayer is changing our hearts, orientating what our hearts want and what our mind and our strength is after and steering it towards God and say, have your way. It's not about getting what we want. That is not prayer. Prayer is not, this is my list of petitions. Um, it would be great if you could have them done by such and such a date. Thanks. Who's the master and the slave in that relationship? If I'm doing that to God, then I'm treating him as my slave. Right? Of course he wants to give us what we need and what we want, but it's about how we start that relationship. How are we in that relationship? It's orientating our hearts first and foremost to the Father and saying, let your will be done in my life. What do you, is there anything you would like me to do today? Right? That's how Jesus lived. Yeah. He said, I can do nothing but what, I, what my Father tells me to do. Where did his Father tell him to do this? In prayer. Yeah. And through the Holy Spirit as he's walking. Right? But notice the first phrase there, our Father. The word Father was revolutionary for Jesus to tell the people of Israel that your God is now your Father. He got crucified for claiming that God is his father. But he gives that to us today. He gave, us, he gave it to the Israelites that day. He's not just my father now, Jesus. It is yours through me. And the word hallowed, we don't use that anymore. Right? But hallowed means holy, consecrated, sacred, and revered. All of those. I'll read it again. Holy, consecrated, sacred, and revered. You're lifting up God's name as it is the most important thing that's set aside. Nothing else can be on the same level yeah. in your heart and in reality. And we're asking that his kingdom be sought and brought. Who are the kingdom bringers? We are. Jesus gave us the keys. We are the ones to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Where we walk, the kingdom of heaven should be prevalent. Amen? Just like Jesus. See, that is what that is the first part of the Lord's Prayer. That is the true meaning of prayer. Jesus is teaching his people 
how to change the state of their heart from looking down on self and looking what do what I need and what my problems are to look up first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. But note there's a second part too. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us. And now I was talking about us, but notice it's not singular. It's not about give me, give my, my family, what I want. It's a community. It's plural. It's focused on the community. When Jesus was sitting on the mount, he was talking to his disciples, and not just the 12, he was talking about the crowd that they termed as the disciples, the people that followed after Jesus. And he's saying, give us, this whole community, us as a family. Amen? That's why it was powerful to read the Lord's Prayer out loud as a family. And the most important part is how it starts. The first word of the Lord's Prayer is, our Father. We can experience the Father together as a family. I'm going to read you a quote from Morgan. The whole prayer is social. The singular pronoun is absent. Man enters the presence of the Father and then prays as one of the great family. Isn't that powerful? Did you, I never saw the Lord's Prayer like that, to be honest, before I studied. I never saw that the Lord's Prayer is not just about me and my relationship with God alone and my family. It's about the whole family of the believers. You see, this all sparked for me before Michael asked me to preach on Tuesday. Last weekend, I was watching a series called AD, which recounts, it's a 2015 account of Acts. And it's, they pick up where the episode I watched, they pick up is before Pentecost. The festival of Pentecost is about to happen, and the, the disciples are waiting. What are we waiting for? No, we're waiting for the Holy Spirit. What is this Holy Spirit? We don't know. We must wait. And then Peter says, they're asking, what shall we do? And it's like Peter has a light bulb moment. Let's pray. Okay, that's what Jesus did. Yeah, yeah. What are we going to pray? Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray how he taught us to pray. And that hit me there, right there. This is what they would pray, because this is what he taught them. He was their rabbi. He was their teacher. He said, pray like this. So they did. And that's when the Holy Spirit came. Right? And they prayed together in the room. And note in Pentecost, they show, they take... Specific account to note, not all the disciples were there, but the woman as well, and Mary. They make specific reference to that, which means no separation in our prejudice. The, the Holy Spirit came for everyone, but they sought the Lord, and the key was in one accord. And I believe the Holy Spirit came and strengthened those power. You see, that's what the, the, the Lord's Prayer is about, unity of the brethren, just as much as seeking the Lord's will and his heart. And the teacher also expounded as I listened this week. He says, imagine you're praying the Lord's Prayer in the afternoon, which I think maybe some of us should start taking lunch breaks and going praying in a park. Imagine when you're praying the Lord's Prayer and you say, give us our daily bread, and you see someone over there that doesn't have any. What does that do to your heart? Doesn't, doesn't something happen there? If I just said, give us our daily bread, that man is my brother and my sister, and he doesn't have any. And I'm supposed to manifest the kingdom and give him bread. Who's supposed to do it? What would Jesus do in that situation? He wouldn't think twice. See, bread is communal. Breaking of bread means togetherness. 
The bread symbolizes everything we need for sustenance, but it's the we that needs it, not just the I. It's a daily continual reliance on God. That's what it says, give us our daily bread. It's a continual reliance, knowing who our source is. If we pray that prayer in sincerity of heart, the Spirit will begin to move, and He will move us to compassion, just like He did Jesus, where Jesus just fed people that didn't have lunch that day because they didn't have time to pack up, but they're like, well, we're following Jesus, let's go. And Jesus spoke for a long time. See, the same way as the prayer moves is into forgiveness. It's the same. We receive forgiveness and give it out, just like Christ forgave us. Now, what we mentioned in Bible study this week is, I saw, I saw this prayer in a different way when it treats forgiveness. Just like we said, it's a communal thing. But imagine if you deny forgiveness that someone has wronged you in some way, and that there's no question that they have wronged you. That's where forgiveness comes in, right? So there's, the debate is settled. They've wronged you. But if you to deny forgiveness in your own heart is to say in the Lord's Prayer to leave out that section, to say to deny the power of the cross in both your and their life. So the cross did not apply to this moment and it does not apply to them right now because I'm too upset. That's like, pfft. So God never even runs it once again. Are we choosing what we want to do or are we choosing what God wants? Are we going to be the generation that dies in the wilderness or are we going to be the generation that moves into the promised land? And we know that's not an easy thing. We're going to go through moments, all of us together, every day, every moment of every day where that is a choice consistently. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, He will enable us to choose life, to choose forgiveness, to allow the cross to impact people at every moment and say, yo, why? Why is He forgiving me of this? Because of one, one God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's where we start preaching the kingdom message. Matthew 6, verse 14 to 15. And before I finish off the prayer, I wanted to read this. This is from the Passion Translation again. And when you pray, make sure you forgive the faults of others so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you. But if you withhold forgiveness from others, your Father withholds forgiveness from you. Now, you need to understand it's not that he wants to. It's he has no other choice. You, if you accept the cross, you accept it for yourself and to walk in it for others. If you reject the cross, you're no longer walking in it. It's us that prevents him to give it to us. That's why Jesus stressed on that point in, after the Lord's Prayer, from verse 14 to 15, straight after he gave the Lord's Prayer, he takes special time to only mention the one section of it, is forgiveness, because he knows this is where people are going to struggle the most. And this is what holds us back the most. The message says, in a sentence, keep us safe from yourselves and the devil. That's, do not lead us into temptation. Right? I just love that part. Keep us safe from ourselves. So many times we blame the enemy for tempting us, but it's our own will and desires and what we want. So the message, Eugene Peterson, I think, summed 90% of the time, keep us from ourselves. And it's important that the Lord, you ask the Lord to help you to deliver you from the evil one. Who else is going to do it? Now, some, some translations in your Bible doesn't have the last ending or for closing. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with it being there or with it not being there. The truth is Jesus didn't utter those words when he gave it to his disciples. That's the truth. That comes from 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11 to 13. 
Because the church, and I like the way a teacher explained it to me, is that the church almost read the prayers like, it's not finished yet. And they said, well, let us respond. Let us Shema respond to God, his prayer, back to him. So I think it's perfectly fine to pray the last thing because it's biblical, it's scriptural, there's nothing wrong with it. For yours is the kingdom. Going back to transitioning my heart back to him and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So there's nothing wrong with praying that last sentence. If your Bible has it, pray it. If your Bible doesn't have it, either change the translation and pray it or don't. It doesn't matter to God. So let's look at this prayer through the eyes of Jesus, through his description of the greatest command. And this is where I marry both Matthew's account and Deuteronomy, marrying both the Shema and the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40 in the New King James Version. Jesus said to him, you shall love, who's he saying? The Pharisee challenged him, right? What is the greatest command? Tried to catch Jesus out. What is the greatest command? And Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Now, I want us to remove the word first, and I want us to remove the word second. This is the part, the starting point of the great commandment. The continuation and completion of that point is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. One of one. On these two commands hang all the law and all the prophets. Jesus says this is the, most, the two most important aspects, and he quotes scripture from two different places in the Torah. The first one we know is the Shema, we prayed it, but it wasn't complete yet. Because like the Lord's Prayer, it was the first half. It was our Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. But there's a second half to that prayer, and that's give us our plural community we need to respond and to love the neighbors, to love our neighbors. And we know again people challenge, what, who is our neighbor? And Jesus gives the story. Okay, I'm going to do it. Today's, if Jesus had to tell the story today to a bunch of Christians, right, all of us sitting here today, he would tell you that either, what is that faction in the Middle East at all? ISIS. He would tell you that an ISIS guy is lying on the ground, he's about to die, and someone just robbed him. And who was going to, who's going to walk past three times? One person's going to walk past, another person's going to walk past, but who are we? We are the Good Samaritan. It's the same. You see, Samaritans and Jews didn't like each other. It's like saying a Muslim man is lying on the ground and a Christian is there to help him. That is his neighbor. So in other words, the person you least expect or likely to want to treat as your neighbor is your neighbor. In other words, every single person on this earth is your neighbor, no matter what culture, creed, color, or religion. Do we believe that? I think when we start loving different people, that's when they will turn to Christ. It's the goodness of God that leads to salvation. You see... The second part of the Lord's Prayer is about love and not just to the Father but expressing that love from the Father to the people around us. I'm going to read a quote from David Guzik from The Enduring Word. What God wants most from us is our love. We often think God demands a hundred other things from us, our money, our time, our effort, our will, our submission, and so forth. But what God really wants is our love. When we really love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, then everything else is freely already given to him. 
That's powerful. Amen? You see, the second part of the prayer is we receive and we share bread. We receive and we share forgiveness. Together, we are kept safe from selfishness and the enemy because we are kept safe in the love of God. I believe through the Holy Spirit we have no better way and no better ability like the generations before us, thanks to the person of the Holy Spirit, to shama the Lord, to listen, to hear, to listen, to understand, to obey, and to respond to God. The Holy Spirit has given us this ability and this freedom to do just that. So when any moment of the day when you are wrestling with yourself or you are wrestling with something, call to the Spirit. If you need to pray prayers, pray the Shema, pray the Lord's Prayer. Just orientate your heart back to Him and ask, Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? And He will speak. And He will give you a way that you never thought was an option. And you might feel uncomfortable on the first step, but you know when you take it, that's obedience and responding in love. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.